we've been looking at the life of Abraham, and today we come to this chapter. Genesis chapter 22 is perhaps the most troubling, disturbing... Hmm? Genesis chapter 22 is perhaps the most troubling, disturbing, or one of the most chapters in all of Scripture. And atheists love this chapter. They love to use it, and it's understandable, and we need to understand why. We need to listen with understanding ears to the skeptic. We need to hear their arguments and listen, and we need to be ready with good, reasonable answers because they have some really good questions. Because when you lift this chapter out of context of the rest of the, the, the overarching narrative of the gospel through the whole of Scripture, you just lift this one chapter out, it's a horrible, very hard-to-understand, head-scratching Story. So let's talk about that today and the mistake that people make when they judge God and they draw their conclusions about Christianity based on this story is that they lift it out of context. And it's so very important that of all stories, we put this story and we keep it in context Context is everything. Context, context, context. Uh, Megan sent me a, a meme. It was so perfect and timely. She sent me this meme yesterday. And it had this cute little plaque, and, and the wall plaque, and it said, um, life is short, lick the bowl. Well, that sounds good, right? I mean, what do you think of? What do you think? I think of, I think of chocolate cake batter, right? <laughs> The only thing is, someone had set this plaque on the lid of a toilet. <laughs> Context. Context is everything. And so if you lift Genesis 22 out of context, you have a story that it is as, as awful as licking a toilet bowl. So let's put it in context today. So I want to start by reading the first half of this story. Let's start in Genesis 22, starting with verse 1, and we're going to stop after 10 verses, and then we'll come back to it, okay? Genesis, oh, before, I'm sorry, before I do that, I, for those of you who haven't been here, and also just for review, let's just do a very quick overview of what we've learned so far from the life of Abraham. Again, what I'm doing is I'm giving you the context for this story. So as we've already talked about in weeks gone by, uh, we, Abraham's story starts in Genesis um, chapter 12, and that, and we're not going to read all these scriptures, just as a quick overview for the sake of time. In Genesis chapter 12, God visits Abraham. And in Acts, it says, Paul is preaching the gospel to the Jews in Acts, and he says, the, he says, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. So he was unique in history, this man Abraham. The glory of God, and we can't even imagine what that was like, but the glory of God appeared to Abraham. And uh, it starts in Genesis 12. God initiated a covenant 
This is like an agreement, like it's as binding as a marriage. God initiated a covenant with Abraham, and he, he said, get out of your country, get out from your father's house, go to a land I will show you. I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth, that is, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. So that was God's initiating of his covenant with Abraham. And then uh, in Abraham um, chapter, uh, he qualifies this. Um, when Abraham inherits Canaan uh, in chapter 13, God tells him, he brings him into the land of Canaan, and he says, arise and walk through this land. I'm, I'm going to give it to you, the length and the width, everything that you see, all the land I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever, and I'm going to make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. It's all going to be yours, Abraham. So that is God in Genesis 13, the next chapter, qualifying this covenant that he has initiated with Abraham. Okay, And then again, uh, in chapter 15, we had that lesson where there's this ceremony involving the, co- the cutting of animals, and we talked about what all that means. And again, God is qualifying and he's ratifying the covenant. That is, he's making it official, okay? So God initiates the covenant with, with Abraham. He qualifies it. He ratifies it. And then he renews it in chapter 17 through the sign of circumcision. You can go back and watch the videos. We talked about all of this and all, everything that that means. He renews the covenant with Abraham. So Abraham, here's context. He has become accustomed to a life in which God himself regularly visits him face-to-face and qualifies and renews this covenant that God has uniquely made with only Abraham. He is unique in history as the person God is calling to be the head of a brand new nation And from that nation, that is from Abraham's descendants, is going to come the Messiah who will be the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And that's what God meant when he said, Abraham, through you, through your seed, your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. You're going to be a blessing, and through you is going to come the one who's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So... That is the context that's so important to realize that Abraham had this very unique calling and relationship with God in which he was used to God showing up face-to-face in a very unusual, personal, dramatic, glorious way and constantly renewing and qualifying this covenant that he has made with Abraham. That's only part of the context, though. I'm going to bring more context to this as we go. So now, let's go to chapter 22 is where this covenant is fulfilled uh, with Abraham. Uh, No, the covenant is fulfilled. I skipped a play. The covenant is fulfilled when God promises Abraham. Here's another part of the covenant. He promises Abraham from your own body 
from your own body and actually from your wife's body, I'm going to bring this son, this descendant, and from him is going to be the blessing. The savior of the world is going to come through him. And so the covenant is fulfilled when Abraham and Sarah at the ages of 90 and 100, this old couple miraculously give birth to a son named Isaac. So the covenant is fulfilled. And now we come to Genesis 22 where the covenant is confirmed. So it's initiated, it's qualified, it's renewed, it's ratified, it's fulfilled, and now it is confirmed. And this time the covenant is confirmed through Abraham's act of faith. And we need to look at that today. So there's the introduction. Let's read Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. You know, he didn't have his little pocket Bible climbing up that hill that day. It's not as though he could open it up and say, God tested Abraham. Oh, cool, good. It's just a test. He didn't know what we know, right? God said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Again, context. This is not a sudden appearance of God to him for the first time. He's used to this by now. You have to understand this is crucial. He's used to this. He knows God's voice. So when God says, Abraham, he's like, hey, I'm right. I'm here, here. He's very accustomed to this God. He has come to know and love very intimately and closely. So he says, here I am. Then he, God said, those words, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Notice God points out to Abraham what Abraham already knows. Isaac is his only son, that is the only son of promise, the only son through whom the Messiah is going to come. And this word that God uses is yahid. It's the same word that we see in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Hebrew translation of that New Testament verse is the same word, yahid. So God is strategically pointing out, Abraham, take your only son whom you love, God's acknowledging he understands what he's asking of Abraham. Take your only son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Interestingly enough, the mountains of Moriah are the same location where Jesus died on the cross. It's believed that that's where the hill in Jerusalem was. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So, without question... Without argument, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, his only son whom he loved. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And not I, we 
will come back to you. What do you think is in that word we? Why did he say we? Was this hopeful, wishful thinking? Maybe I'm going to change my mind and say forget it and come back. Was he saying it to make sure that Isaac didn't know what was about to happen? Or did he know something in the depth of his knower that made him as sure as the sun rising that he and Isaac were going to come back? Well, let's find out. We will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand. This is probably like a flint or something and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. People raise some really important questions when they don't know the context of this story. And I think we need to respect those questions and heed them, and we need to have good answers. Because it does beg the question, how does a God who has made it abundantly clear that you don't take a life and he's laid it out clearly in his law. Child sacrifice is what the heathens do. Don't copy them. And so how does this life-giving God, who is so anti-killing and death, then contradict himself seemingly and ask Abraham to slay his own son. And not only that, but this is the son that God has promised through this son, I'm going to make an, a mighty nation. So the command is contradicting the, the promise. There's a question. And then how does Abraham come to actually believe? Who is he to think that God is actually telling him this? A lot of people have done things in the name of God told me. Happens all the time. People blow up people. After saying, God told me. So how does Abraham think that God has actually told him to do this horrible, radical thing? And then there's Isaac. There's no indication that Isaac ever complains. He willingly submits to this. Laying himself on that altar to be bound and slain by his father. There's a book that I read called Under the, Banner, Under the Banner of Heaven. It's a true story of this uh, murderer in Utah, I believe it was in the 80s. This man took a boning knife and brutally murdered his 15-year-old, 15-month-old niece. And in the book, he's quoted as saying something like, 
I was so comfortable raising that knife in the air. It was as though God's hand was guiding me. And when God tells you to do something, you don't offend him by disobeying. One could easily lift this verse out of Scripture and say, see there, bad things have been done in the name of following the Bible. He's copying Abraham. You could understand that. And so how is it that the man in Utah is this deranged murderer, but Abraham is praised for his remarkable act of faith and obedience and love for God and being, in being seconds away from slaying his son? Let's give context. But first, a couple notes. Very importantly, I want to tell you today that God will never ask you to do something that is in contradiction to his nature. He will never allow anything to happen to you or bring you through anything that contradicts his nature, no matter how it might look to you. God will never contradict his nature through any action of his. And what is his nature? Well, 1 John 4, 7 tells us, first of all, that God is love. That is the very definition of, of God. God is essentially love. So everything he allows is coming from a heart that is purely, essentially love. God is also truth. What did Jesus say in John 4, 6, 14, 6? I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Hebrews 6, 18 says, God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. So he's love, he's truth. So Abraham understood that when God told him and kept reminding him and repeating it to him, Abraham, from, your, from this son, I'm going to make descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham knew that God couldn't lie. There's the context. He's climbing this hill with his son and with the wood in his arms, and his context is God who has told me to do this thing is essentially, absolutely love, and he cannot lie, and he has promised me that from this kid is going to come a great nation who's going to bless the world. So I don't understand this, but I understand the character and the nature of this God. That's all we need to understand in life. It really is. When you truly understand God's nature and his character, that he is essentially, inherently, absolutely, fundamentally love, and he cannot lie and go back on his word, that's all you need to understand. Everything else will become clear eventually. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly, but that someday we'll see face to face. We'll see clearly. Right now, I understand as a child. I talk like a child. I, I act like a child. I, I, I understand childishly. Someday I will know face to face what I don't know now. God is love, God is truth, he is also life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So this is who Abraham knew God to be. And not only that, here's more context. God 
is and wants to be intimately involved in every part of your life, including your suffering. Christianity is unique in that this God, the Christian God, has stepped down into our mess and said, I will be here with you. I will sit in this with you. You do not have to go through this alone. When you suffer, I suffer. When your heart is broken, my heart is broken. Only a God of love can say that. If you love your child, doesn't your heart break when their heart breaks? How much more, God, your heavenly Father, his heart breaks for your broken heart. And Abraham knew that. There's a book, a famous book, maybe you've read it, it's called Night. It's written by um, Elie Wiesel, the, the man who went through Auschwitz and then uh, the, concentra- the concentration camp there in 1944. And he writes about the horrific suffering there in this concentration camp. And he, there's this famous passage where he is being forced to walk by these gallows. And there's three gallows, and three people are hanging on these gallows. Two of them are adults, and they have already immediately died. But the one is a child, and I guess because of his shorter stature, for whatever reason, he's taking a while to actually breathe his last breath. And, and Ellie and the others with him are being forced to watch this horrible, nightmarish scene before them. This child hanging in the gallows, and someone behind him yells out, where is the merciful God? And then again a few minutes later, where is God? For God's sake, where is God now? And Ellie writes, at that moment I heard a voice within myself say, where is God? I'll tell you where he is. He is there hanging on the gallows. He joins us in our suffering. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When Jesus was on the cross, God was there bleeding and dying. This God who poured out his lifeblood for you and me is there, is there, is so very present in all of our suffering. He does not distance himself to leave us to suffer alone. That's the God Abraham knew. God, too, gave his only son, whom he loved, willingly gave him. When Sarah was suddenly gone across the world to this communist country where she's going to live for a year, and she landed there, and then her first phone call, Mom, my my bank card doesn't work. And I realized, there's my child in China, and she can't buy food. Like, I thought maybe down the road something like that could happen. Not immediately. I had to know right then that God is love and he is life and he is truth and he is there and he is very present. And you know what came to me as I was grieving this loss? I mean, this is my petty little loss. I I dare not compare this loss to any loss of yours, but I'm driving, I dropped her off at the airport and I'm driving through the city and it's bad enough with dry eyes driving through the Bronx and Manhattan. I mean, those bridges, that's nuts. But I'm crying and I can barely see. I've got tears streaming down my face. And all of a sudden I thought, and it's as though I heard the father say, 
Yeah, I know what that's like. I had to send my kid to the world. He had to leave his home in glory where I was ever present, immediately visible right there with him. And he had to leave and come to earth and start living as a human being, having to trust that I was there when he was never going to see me for 33 years. He would never see me. He would have to trust that I could hear him and that I was present with him by my spirit. Yeah, I know what that's like. I sent a kid far away. God understands our pain. There is nothing you and I can ever go through that God cannot say, yeah, I've been there, done that. Absolutely nothing. He gave his only begotten son. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted, tested like we are, yet without sin. Now you might say, Faith, you know that doesn't really help. A story of the kid hanging on the gallows. It doesn't really help all the way to know that God was there because it still happened. And this thing still happened to me. Well, one would be right to despair except for two things. They'd have to believe that either God knows something that we don't know and he sees that child, that 15-month-old girl who was butchered, that kid hanging on the gallows in Auschwitz. There's something that God must know that we don't know. He must have this divine, eternal perspective from outside the dimension of time that says, this thing that you've experienced, this horrific tragedy, is just a blip in eternity. It will be long forgotten in eternity when this child is mine forever living in the love of my presence. He knows what we don't know. We have such a finite, limited under, human understanding that makes us struggle and question. But if we know that God is love, and he is truth, and he is life, he knows what he's doing with everyone he allows to go through anything. Or else... There's that, but there's also healing available now. You and I don't have to wait till eternity to experience God's healing presence. It is absolutely available now. He's the healer of the broken heart. The scripture doesn't say he's the someday, maybe, if you're lucky, healer of your broken heart. God is your right now healer of your broken heart. It's available to you. He's a very present help. In trouble. Finally, let's get back to the context of this story. What makes Abraham so different from anyone else who would say, God told me, and then raise a knife? Matthew Rowley, who's a Cambridge scholar, wrote a wonderful article. Um, and uh, his article is called Irrational Violence, Reconsidering the Logic of Obedience in Genesis 22. And he says this, The primary error is in separating the supreme act of faith of Abraham 
from the uniquely miraculous life of faith. You have to understand, Abraham lived a uniquely miraculous life. Miracles were the norm for him. He experienced so many miracles, and they were not just personal miracles. They were widely publicized, very publicly witnessed miracles. This is crucial. This was his way of life, his lifestyle. He was accustomed to the glory of God appearing to him, God speaking to him directly, audibly, showing up visibly to him. Uh, in Genesis 12, there's a miraculous plague that comes on Pharaoh's house because of Abraham. Uh, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, God raining fire and brimstone, a miraculous act as a result of the, the horrific gang violence in Sodom and Gomorrah. We talked about that. There's another a king, Abimelech, who, who um, almost came under the judgment of God because of he tried to take Abraham's wife. There's Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who acknowledged and validated Abraham as being uniquely blessed by God in history. Same with Abimelech and Pharaoh. I mean, you had, you had foreign kings validating and confirming Abraham is something special. He's called by God. He's unique in history. And those statements are confirmed over and over by these wide, publicly acclaimed and witnessed miracles. And finally, the greatest miracle of all, Abraham and Sarah have a son at age 90 and 100. Did the Utah murderers think that God told him to slay that baby? Yes. Did he know that baby was going to rise from the dead? No. Was his life like Abraham's, a life of miracles, publicly acclaimed and witnessed and acknowledged miraculous? No. So we cannot make a comparison. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says, God's words at this time were in the context of Abraham's strong reason for knowing that God both existed and was totally trustworthy. This was not a blind and irrational, this was not an irrational act of blind faith. And that's the argument people make when they lift this context out of, story out of context. What an irrational thing to do. See, that's where blind faith will get you. It'll make you kill people and blow them up. But that's not what's going on here. You have to go back and look at Abraham's entire life. It was nothing but a blind faith. It was a very visible, reasonable faith. Matthew Raleigh says, Murderers and deranged can borrow language from the sacrifice of Isaac, but they cannot repeat the context of the Abrahamic narrative. This discredits their appeals to comparable sacred violence. One misuses the climax of Abraham's story when they divorce it from the rest of the drama. He also said, because Isaac knew his father had been miraculously set apart by God. Isaac's watched this all his, all his life. He was willingly submissive. Because of the miracles, neither Abraham nor Isaac are examples of a normative parent-child relationship, or normative life and calling for that matter. Isaac was like, he was a foreshadow, a type of Jesus who said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life, I give it willingly. 
I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. So now let's finish in these closing minutes. Let's go back to the story and see what happens as this drama unfolds. He raises the knife to slay his son. Verse 11, Genesis 22, 11. The angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And God said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. This is a healthy reverence and awe of God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son, instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided." Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. And he reiterates, he confirms the covenant. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What did Abraham know that would cause him to act in such a radical display of obedience and faith? Let's connect the dots now quickly. If you go to Hebrews 11, connecting to the Old, to the New Testament, Hebrews 11 and verse 8, we find the answer to this great question. What did Abraham know? Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he, he obeyed, when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. This is the beginning of his call, his context. He dwelt in the land of promise by faith, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac, and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, Jacob was his grandson, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's his eternal mindset. This world is not my home. I'm just here on pilgrimage. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. She had the same context. She saw everything Abraham saw. She was accustomed to the miracles, the presence of God, the call of God, the nature and character of God. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude." innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And it goes on to say in verse 17, and here it is. What did Abraham know? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises, this is Abraham, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Verse 19 says it all. What did Abraham know? All he knew was that God had promised that Isaac's, from Isaac's descendants was going to come a great nation. So as he's walking up that hill with a wood and a knife, all he knows is that I'm going to obey. I, I'm going to obey. I don't understand. I cannot figure this out. But all I know is either God's going to stop this knife in the air or he's going to raise my son from the dead. It has to be. It cannot be any other thing. That's what Abraham knew. Because he understood and trusted, trusted God's good character in his nature. God may not ask you. He won't, actually. He won't. This is unique in history. He won't ask you to sacrifice your child or do anything on that level of, of uh, radical. But you may find yourself this morning in a place that's perplexing, disturbing. You might not see any way out. I don't know how God's going to fix this. I have no idea what is going to happen. I don't understand this. I cannot figure out why on earth God has brought me to this place. What's he doing? Why is he asking this of me? This is way too hard. I cannot do this another day. What is our context? We don't have the call of Abraham. We haven't, we, didn't, we haven't seen what he saw, heard what he heard. But we have something so far greater. Our context is the cross. Our context is God himself hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying, saying, I am willing to pour out my lifeblood to show you how much I love you. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it, is, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. It feels like that sometimes. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through who? Through him who loved us. There's your context. Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That ram in the thicket that God provided as an atoning sacrifice in the place of Isaac 
foreshadow Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice. What more can we say to these things? If God be for us in such a drastic way, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're going to close with communion. Um, uh, Barry and Chris, could I ask you to come and serve the elements? I know we're, um, this has been long today, but I feel like I said that last time too. Thank you for your patience. Just feel it's important to um, give final context to this word today as we look at these elements in our hand and see the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross what he was willing to go through to demonstrate his undying love and care for us. And my question to you today as we're closing, as we receive these elements of communion, representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ, my question for you today as we close is this. Can he trust him? Is he trustworthy? No matter what you're going through, no matter where you find yourself Right now, no matter what you are experiencing, no matter what perplexities are keeping you in, in possibly despair, can you trust him in the context of the cross? Can you look at that God who is willing to die for you and say, I can trust this God because he loves me and he loves me that much? Can you trust him even as he's asking you to do something you do not understand? Even as he's bringing you through a place and you have no idea when you're going to reach the end or how you're going to come out or how it's going to all work out and how God's going to fix it, even as you have no idea why you are where you are, can you trust him? Can you trust him? Can you trust this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who says, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld that which is most dear from me. What's most dear to you? Is it your own life and have you failed in trying to figure it out? Can you trust him? Can you give it to him? Maybe it's your life he's asking for today. Can you lay down your life on the altar of sacrifice and say, God, I am at the end. I come to you. I surrender to you. I give my life to you, and I trust you because I realize you love me, and he died to save me. Can you trust him? Is that the God you would like to come to know and love if you don't already? Can you trust him? So as we look at this, these elements representing the torn body of Jesus on the cross and the blood that he shed for you, I want us to look at that and say, can I trust him? Can I trust this God? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, uh, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to read the rest of the passage and then we'll partake of both together. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant. See, he has made a covenant with us, a better one than he even made with Abraham. This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for demonstrating who you are, your nature, your character, your loving heart on the cross for us. This is our context in which we can live and say, therefore I know that I can trust him while I don't understand. I can trust this God as I hold these elements in my hand and I look at them, I can say, yes, this is a God I can trust because he loves me this much. This is how much he loves me. And so we thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made for us on the cross. Would you partake of the bread and the cup with me together? If you're here today, and maybe this is a new, new truth for you, a new message, and you've come to realize sitting here this morning, I didn't know God was like this, that he was a God who loves me enough that he was willing to die for me. And I think I can trust that kind of God. I can trust that kind of God, even though I don't understand what I'm going through in my life right now. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I think I'd like to trust God with my life, if that's you. All you need to do is just agree with that. Just say in your heart Say it out loud when you get home, however and whenever you want to say it, but say it and mean it. God, I need you in my life. Jesus, be the Savior of my life. You're the only one I can truly trust, and I realize that now. I believe that you died as the atoning sacrifice for my sins, and I am forgiven, past, present, and future. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And so today I say yes to trusting you with my life completely because I see how you demonstrated your love for me and I can trust that. In Jesus' name. Father, from this day forward, we choose to trust you. We can trust you no matter what. We thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that for everyone sitting here today who does not see the provision, you are Jehovah Jireh, and you will provide that ram in the thicket. The Lord will provide. Let it be our statement of faith. The Lord will provide everything I need. And until then, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him because he is love. You are love, God. You are love. And I can trust you. So, Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for this 
beautiful body of people here gathered together, and I pray that you would bless our fellowship and our lunch as we eat together, and we just thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.